Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It sure is great to be back on the air with you guys, and I know it seems like it has been quite a good while since I was on the air last. I know it's been um, probably about four days, which doesn't seem like a long time, but on the other hand, to me, it kind of does seem like a bit of a long time. But as I've said before, and I'd say it again, um, you certainly can't revolve your life revolve your life around one thing, and as much as I enjoy podcasting, I know that there are plenty of other things that are just as important, and in many instances do have to take uh, precedent over uh, podcasting, but that's okay, because this is a side hobby, but it is a side hobby that certainly is well worth the time and energy to be investing in when um, I definitely have the time to be on the air with you guys. Uh, I certainly hope that wherever you all live, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world, I hope all of you did have a good weekend. Hard to believe we're already into the um, halfway point of uh, September. I don't know where all the time goes by, but it sure does move quick uh, the older we get, it seems. Now, uh, my wife and I did have a chance to go back to one of our favorite uh, spots, and I know I've mentioned it many of uh, other times uh, in the past, and that being uh, Colonial Williamsburg. We had, we had a, a quick uh, weekend getaway, but it was certainly well worth it. Uh, we got to see uh, George Washington speak uh, at Colonial Williamsburg. We also um, got to uh, partake in what's called uh, Order of the Court at the uh, courthouse. I had the uh, distinction of being the uh, sheriff. I um, banged the um, stick three times uh, to get the uh, court uh or to get the audience in uh, court um, under attention, and then at the very end uh, to end the session by banging my stick uh, three times. I also had the distinction of being able to uh, call out uh, witnesses uh, whom would come forward and take the stand um, based upon the matters that lied at stake. Of course, it was all reenactment, but it was a great uh, learning experience in being able to be uh, reminded of what it meant to be on a, not just so much on a jury, but to be a part of uh, the courtroom process in uh, colonial times. And I should be reminded of the fact that some of the cases that that um, our group uh, partook in, some of those cases um, bear similarity to what exists in today's world. Of course, that would be, a, that would be for a whole other uh, series topic discussion, but if, if for those of you who haven't been to Colonial Williamsburg, I strongly recommend that you go. And I also strongly recommend that, um, that you visit order in the uh, court on, um, du- on uh, Duke of Gloucester Street. It is uh, definitely worth the time and energy when you go into the uh, courthouse. It's a small-sized courthouse, but that's where you would hear uh, mostly uh, matters that would pertain to, say, misdemeanors, matters that in particular uh, one example that um, that we uh, addressed on Sunday had to do with a uh, tavern keeper bringing a suit bringing a suit that is to a uh, guest whom uh, was unable to pay uh, the head tavern keeper the um, desired amount of money simply in part because he was a uh, a guest who was from out of town and we're not talking from point A to point B in Virginia he came all the way from North Carolina he wanted to pay the tavern keeper with North Carolina paper money. The problem is that uh, North Carolina paper money does not go hand in hand with Virginia money. Luckily, the compromise that was reached was that he was able to. Um, there was a uh, broker in town 
whom would be able to um, help um, come up with some kind of an arrangement where the uh, individual would get you know three to four days to be able to uh, come up with the money based upon the ratio uh, the uh, difference ratio between uh, where uh, money in Virginia stood versus that of uh, North Carolina in terms of uh, overall face value so bottom line is that uh, we do have ex we do have situ there were situations back in colonial times where people did not uh, pay on time just like we have just like we see in today's time but of course in colonial times not everyone had uh, access to credit those who probably did have access to credit were upper middle class maybe middling families especially the gentry one thing i've often learned is that while the gentry may have had unlimited um, access to credit they certainly had a way of showing off their stuff but when it came to paying off their debts that was a whole nother story but I know I could go on and on, but I also know that if I continue to go on and on, I might not have enough time to uh, present to you all uh, what we're going to be doing in this next uh, podcast series uh, segment or podcast segment episode to what we're currently doing uh, being a signal victory, the Lake Erie campaign of 1812-1813. Now, I will say that we certainly covered a lot of ground from the previous episode, given that um, we are now in the heart of the actual battle. In this uh, podcast segment um, episode, we're going to talk more about the final part of, uh, of the actual battle to Lake Erie. And I will tell you that it will be just as intense as it was from the previous um, episode. But I will tell you this, even after uh, this episode, we will still have more to cover. So it would be fair to say, on one hand, well, gee, after this um, battle ends, what what else would there be left to talk about? Well, that's actually the beauty of it. You know, it's easy to assume that, well, when the battle ends, there's nothing left. But in actuality, there is. There is more to talk about. So what I do know is that we probably better get the show on the road and uh, be prepared for what lies in store. I will tell you this much. Uh, that in this uh, episode, other than that, other than this being uh, the second part of this uh, two-part series to the actual battle, we will learn uh, whether or not um, Britain's flagship Niagara, uh, not Niagara, Britain's flagship uh, HMS Detroit, and second behind Detroit being uh, Queen Charlotte, if the two of them had any uh, severe mishaps that um, impacted one another's abilities to um, to uh, fight against. Um, what was left of the American squadron or the American fleet. After all, we did learn that um, USS Lawrence really did take a beating, but we, but we also will find out whether or not USS Lawrence can still stay in the game, if not full-time, but perhaps part-time. So I think it's time to get the show on the road. Here we go, folks, with our first leadoff question. Uh, despite not being as large in size like USS Lawrence, or HMS Detroit, on the British side, did USS Brig Caledonia still manage to play an important role when squaring off against HMS Queen Charlotte? Answer is yes. How so? Well, Caledonia, Caledonia's, I should say, two 24-pounders uh, went about inflicting significant damage upon HMS Charlotte, most notably cutting down 
And when I mean cutting down, folks, I'm not talking about like, you know, cutting down the nets or cutting down um, a mast in this case. But um, how about the when I say cutting down here, how about taking out via cannon fire Queen Charlotte's most experienced officer being Captain Robert Finnis, which left Britain's second largest vessel without its most veteran officer. So, it, you know, it's always easy to assume that when the uh, damages occur to the opposing ship or the opposing uh, ships, depending on how many are in the fleet and how many are being fired upon at once, we tend to focus on um, the losses that... Um, that are endured in terms of um, a broadside taking a hit or the deck being hit and just, you know, the general crew uh, being impacted. What we do forget is that even officers, no matter where they're positioned, are just as vulnerable as the uh, sailors or just any, uh, any uh, individual below them. And given the fact that um, Queen HMS Queen Charlotte's most veteran officer in Captain Robert Finnis being uh, taken out via um, cannon fire. Now the crew of the uh, of uh, Queen Charlotte have to wonder who's going to step up and take his place, and if the, and if we can't get anyone whom has either close enough experience as he does, or just has enough experience to be able to uh, still put up a fight. Can we still um, can we still uh, manage to stay in the game? Well, uh, USS Ariel and Scorpion's guns also went about inflicting large amounts of damage to uh, Barclays' larger vessels like uh, H HMS Queen Charlotte as well as Detroit. Well, you know it was bad enough that for on that for um, Queen Charlotte that. Uh, Captain Robert Finnis has been taken out, but Lieutenant Robert Barclay, who's aboard HMS Detroit, he is injured in the action from the firings upon Ariel and Scorpion. The uh, injuries that he uh, sustained um, pertain to um, a splinter wound, which made its way into his thigh. Oh, it's bad enough if you get just a basic wound, but to me, this is really severe. A splinter wound. And we're not talking like splinter, you know, from like a piece of wood. The, the splinter wound would have been from all from the projectiles that uh, came out once the cannonball, you know, excel, itself explodes or hits on the moment of impact. So, yes, um, for uh, Lieutenant, not for, yes, for Lieutenant Robert Barclay, he um, endured a splinter wound that made its way into his thigh, uh, thus resulting in him being sent to Detroit's upper deck. So now that um, Lieutenant Barclay, being the lead commander of HMS Detroit, is out of the... Uh, he's temporarily out of commission, let's put it that way. Who's going to... Um, we got to figure out here soon who's going to um, who's going to step up to the helm, even on Detroit, because if um, Lieutenant Barclay's injury is bad enough, one of Barclay's subordinates, being Lieutenant John Garland, well, Lieutenant Garland um, got mortally wounded just before um, Robert Barclay endured um, 
endured his um, injuries via the splinter wound. So it's it's not just one officer who's getting severely injured or hurt in the midst of the firing and the uh, chaos. These these uh, cannonballs, the firings of the cannon alone are not only just impacting one person or, say, five or ten men. Of course, they they could be impacting crew regardless of where they're positioned, but it's but when you start losing officers, when you start losing officers, then you have to wonder who's going to take command and who's going to be able to effectively lead the crew. Because without experienced officers or officers in general, there's no way in the world that a crew could truly function even under the most trying of circumstances. How many uh, seasoned Royal Navy uh, sailors aboard HMS Detroit were ended up either being killed or wounded? Well, it turns out there were uh, 10 seasoned Royal Navy sailors. That doesn't seem like a lot, but considering that even on the British side, there is a lack of seasoned veterans, if, if you can get 10 seasoned veterans in terms of seasoned Royal Navy sailors aboard one vessel, that's better than none. But in terms of um, wound, in terms of the, um, in terms of those uh, seasoned Royal Navy sailors that were either killed or wounded, the answer being seven, seven out of 10 folks, that's 70% right there. So when you have 70% that are either killed or wounded, then it is gonna make, um, it's going to make things all the more um, challenging in terms of relying upon those with actual um, veteran experience. Sergeant John Galpian, or uh, Gilpin, from HMS Detroit lost his left arm at the shoulder. Lieutenant Thomas Stokoe, whom would become the new commander to the Queen Charlotte, was simply unable to strike a major blow to USS Lawrence. You know, yes, USS Lawrence did take a, a beating, but they weren't able to, um, but the British weren't able to strike the final blow. They were hoping that if they could get the final blow, that, that maybe, just maybe, the rest of the U.S. squadron would surrender. Well, did HMS Detroit and Queen Charlotte see their sails and rigging get cut and torn along with having all guns be disabled? Yes, both British flagship vessels were now facing the same state as USS Lawrence was was currently uh, facing. So it wasn't just the USS Lawrence that's facing problems from having her rail, her sails and rigging getting cut and torn along with uh, the guns being disabled, the British aren't immune from this too, and they are seeing this with their um, flagship vessels. Uh, Second Lieutenant George Inglis, he is now com in command of Detroit. He's the one that's going to be filling in now for uh, Lieutenant, um, or for um, Robert Barclay. Lieutenant George Bignell of Brig, of, uh, Brig General Hunter and Lieutenant Edward Buchan of Lady Prevost were each wounded, reducing their means to command. Although Britain had dismantled USS Lawrence, her overall command structure is out of place, 
as many officers and crew are, are either dead or wounded. HMS Detroit, folks, simply not in the best of uh, shape. I think it's fair to say at this uh, point um, that, yes, both sides are still in the game, but the key uh, vessels are have really taken the massive hits. Now, come around 11.45 a.m. on September 10th, how was Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott's ship, Niag USS Niagara, which is the other flagship of the um, American fleet, how did he go about positioning his uh, vessel per line of battle? And, and I know some of you are thinking, why does this matter? Where was USS Niagara all along? I know I had mentioned uh, from the previous podcast where uh, Niagara was not, um, it wasn't too far away from, uh, from uh, the brig Caledonia. But as for how uh, Lieutenant Elliot uh, positioned uh, Niagara per the line, per line of battle, he went about keeping the vessel in what was known as a line of battle aft, AFT, which meant that his vessel was placed behind Brig Caledonia per her stern, a.k.a. the ship's back. Now, despite Lieutenant Turner from the Caledonia having two 24-pound long guns and one 32-pound carronade, he didn't want to risk engaging the enemy via carronade range. But instead, he did so through long gun range, which meant less likelihood of losing his own men to opposing enemy carronade firing. This is where you have to think long and hard. Okay, yes, I may have a 32-pound carronade, but do I want to use it right away? If I was a little bit further from the enemy, then I might not be afraid to take a shot or two with it. But if I'm a little bit closer, why not just start out with the uh, with the 24-pound long guns and see what goes from there? So there's a lot of uh, critical thinking, but the critical thinking in terms of the analytics part has to be done in a short amount of time. These officers don't get 20 to 30 minutes to make a decision. Yes, they might be relying upon the wind to move their uh, vessels and moving the vessels from point A to point B, but still, time is of the essence. Decisions have to be made. They have to be made accurate, but we must remember, accurately that is, but we also must remember that these commanders don't have all day to make one decision. They've got to go with their own gut instinct. You know, it may either uh, make them or it might break them. But despite, um, well, uh, Lieutenant Elliot, I should say, Lieutenant Elliot, um, he was an important leader or figure, I should say, but he delayed overall time given his ship Niagara could have come with an adequate firing range via carronade in squaring off against HMS Queen Charlotte. So if he had come a little bit sooner, we now have to wonder, are, would some things have been a little different? Well, let's find out. Uh, Elliot, and Lieutenant Elliot, that is, he followed conventional British tactics. Conventional British tactics that were put into place prior to even the United States declaring a second war for independence and maybe even before the United States ever 
or what was then colonial America, but in the lead up to the creation of the new United States, um, declaring its official separation from England in 1776. But anyways, with regards to the conventional British tactics, uh, Lieutenant Elliot um, preferred to um, not break the line of battle. He was concerned, though, on one hand, that if he took instant action, that, that uh, USS Niagara could run the risk of colliding into Caledonia. And on one hand, you know, he might have had a valid reason for that, because if, you know, if, if the ship run, if his ship runs into Caledonia, not only is it going to impact uh, both crews, but it, it could take uh, some time to be able to break apart, um, say, the two ships. What if the two ships collide into one another and they're stuck? And all of a sudden the netting on each uh, ship is becomes a problem to where uh, the nets are entangled. There's a lot of what-ifs right there. But luckily, uh, Jesse Lieutenant Elliot did not um, go that route. But he instead preferred sailing in the direction of Caledonia's stern, which did in the end allow Elliot to equip his 12-pound long gun by uh, putting it into use against Queen Charlotte. Niagara did sustain um, minor damage and casualties, unlike Lawrence. So why is this um, of concern here? Well, I can tell you, for one, that uh, Lieutenant Elliot did not d disobey any orders. Had he been told not to um, follow the conventional British tactic, or if he simply had been told not to, um, not to, um, if he had been told not to uh, keep his vessel in a line of uh, battle aft, being placed behind Brig Caledonia, per her ships back, if he had been told not to do that all along, then yes, he would have done things a little differently. But his biggest uh, dilemma here, folks, was that he should have placed service to the fleet above where his vessel had currently stood. In other words, uh, once Queen Charlotte left her current positioning to advance forward, she left a large uh, space or hole. I'm not talking like a hole where you dig, but there was a, a big uh, void. And with this big void, folks, Queen Charlotte um, pretty much left uh, some of her ships, some of her other, um, some of the other um, ships in the fleet uh, all the more vulnerable. But given that Queen Charlotte left her position or positioning to advance forward, she had left a large hole, or I should say space, within her side line of battle, meaning that Lieutenant Elliot could have come forward and seized the opportunity right away to sail Niagara through this open gap and inflict massive harm upon the enemy, thus reducing, or I should say perhaps saving lives of sailors aboard Lawrence, aboard USS Lawrence, whom eventually perished. I don't know how many lives might have been saved if uh, Lieutenant Elliot had gone right away instead of um, being more concerned about where uh, his uh, ship's, um, what do you call it, line of um, placement was. But had he gone a little bit quicker and 
reacted quicker. Who knows? Maybe 10 or 20. Um, I'm just giving a best ballpark range here. Who knows? Maybe 10, uh, 10 to 15. Uh, maybe 10 to 15 uh, crewmen's lives might have been spared. Now, yes, there were those whom did survive on USS Lawrence, but not everybody did. But maybe a few lives could have been spared had um, had the Niagara made it up to a, a different positioning point as soon as uh, Queen Charlotte left her uh, current positioning. But by the time Lieutenant Elliot's Niagara moved forward, so too did the other ships in Trip, Tigris, Porcupine, and Summers. And it turns out, folks, that these four vessels inflicted heavy firing upon HMS Lady Prevost and Little Belt. So even the ships that are of smaller size, they may not have... They may not have a um, carronade. Well, maybe they could have a carronade, depending on how big they are. But even the smaller ships are just as worthy in being able to um, launch a deadly attack and are able to go head-to-toe with uh, the big guys. Uh, given the uh, current circumstances, uh, Commodore Oliver Perry himself was surrounded by what crucial decision did he go about making? Now think about this: if we are, if any of us are Commodore Oliver Perry, and knowing that um, that USS Lawrence, or I should say Brig Lawrence, has taken on a terrible uh, beating, how do we go forward? Well, I think it'd be fair to say that Oliver Perry didn't panic. I, what we do, what I do know, is that he refused to surrender um, the brig Lawrence, despite its condition. Although at the same time, his biggest worry lied with the re with the remaining fleet, which still stood intact. So, in other words, okay, my flagship vessel is has has taken a toll. It may not be able to fight for the remainder of this battle. But if I surrender now, I'm not surrendering just the flagship vessel. I'm surrendering Niagara. I'm surrendering Caledonia. I'm surrendering Ariel, Scorpion, Tigress, Summers, uh, Porcupine. I'm giving up, folks. And um, maybe I mentioned Summers already, but I'm surrendering the whole nine yards of what's left of my fleet. And by doing that, I could be tried for cowardice in a, in a court of law. I could be court-martialed. In other words, I know that there are other officers out there who've made mistakes that um, backfired on them profoundly. So for Oliver Perry, he was not about to make the same mistakes that, that befelled upon previous commanders. Remember what we learned from uh, earlier um, podcast segment episodes. How about um, where officers had on the American side had made some grave mistakes, like Brigadier General William Hull, who surrendered Fort Detroit without putting up a fight. He was uh, court-martialed, tried for cowardice, but you know President James Madison spared his spared him in the end. Uh, William Hull was going to be executed. But James Madison pardoned him on the grounds of his um, 
noble uh, service during the American Revolutionary War. And as a result of that, William Hull never participated in, it, in any other future uh, battles in the War of 1812. And then, of course, there was Lieutenant Porter Hanks at Fort Mackinac, whom, whom like William Hull, neither one of these officers, uh, neither one of these officers properly fortified their uh, forts to where, had they fortified them, they would have at least gone about putting up a fight with the enemy. Of course, Lieutenant Porter Hanks was going to be tried. He was in a court of, in a courtroom. And then, of course, uh, the enemy uh, struck uh, cannon fire at that building where uh, courtroom building where Lieutenant Hanks was, and he died as the as a result of um, of that uh, deadly cannon fire explosion. And then you had uh, General James Winchester at Frenchtown along uh, the River Raisin in present day Monroe, Michigan, whom surrendered um, to um, Colonel Henry Proctor. But did so without even properly fortifying his, um, without fortifying the uh, base. So, for all three of these uh, men whose names I mentioned, they made many mistakes. But to me, the biggest mistake was that none of them properly uh, fortified their uh, forts to where they were able to go about uh, putting up a fight against the enemy. All of whom, all of these uh, officers surrendered to the enemy while there still were opportunities to resist, hold, or I should say, hold out, and they failed to um, capitalize on them. Oliver Perry doesn't want to make that mistake, and I can say that uh, William Henry Harrison from the uh, siege of Fort Meigs, he didn't make those mistakes either. So we do have some luck on our side, but if we're going to prevail. Not only are, have we prevailed by land, but if we're going to prevail by water, then we've got to have uh, an officer who is not going to um, who's not going to make the same mistakes as uh, Brigadier General William Hull, Lieutenant Porter Hanks, as well as General James Winchester. So Oliver Perry goes about um, doing some uh, incredible logistical procedures in a short matter of time, because he knows that he's on borrowed time now, given that this not only so much has this battle begun, but where the current situation stands. So he goes about placing injured First Lieutenant John Yarnall in command of the Lawrence, but he also ordered Private Hosea Sargent from the 17th U.S. Infantry to bring down the flag or the banner flag with that motto, or with the famous motto, Don't Give Up the Ship by transferring it over to Brig Niagara. Perry knew flagship Lawrence was in rough shape, but did not want by no means to end the fight. Perry went about gathering four unwounded crewmen, and they went about moving the mildly damaged cutter, or I should say went about moving a mildly damaged cutter. What is a cutter, folks? A cutter is a double-banked square um, sterned uh, ship's boat for general uh, duty purposes. So it's a smaller uh, boat, but it's a boat that does serve a fundamental purpose. The only thing I can really think of is getting people from point A to point B in short periods of time. Well, this is a matter that does require uh, quick movement 
as soon as possible. So, so yes, uh, for uh, Oliver Perry, he um, placed the um, cutter alongside Lawrence's left side. Lawrence drifted behind Niagara as the cutter led by Perry moved onward. Lieutenant Barclay directed firing upon the small vessel as it neared closer to Niagara. Can you believe this, folks? Uh, Lieutenant Barclay, yes, he's injured, but yet he still has the means to go about um, calling out an executive order in terms of firing upon the crew of this um, cutter, a.k.a. small vessel, and you almost are left to wonder that had had uh, Lieutenant Barclay prevailed here, even though the, uh, they fired the um, they fired at the vessel, Perry and the crew were left unharmed by the firing of British projectiles. But had this happened, folks, where the the projectiles um, did get their um, objective in taking in um, injuring not only the cutter, but you're left to wonder what if Perry had been profoundly wounded, profoundly wounded to the point where he might not have been able to have carried out his duties. Then you have to wonder, okay, if the cutter is taken out and Perry and these um, previously unharmed uh, crewmen are taken out. What's going to become of the Niagara? Well, the Niagara might meet might meet a an eventual fate that could seal this whole thing. Well, Perry, having avoided danger, or I should say, dodged it, he Perry himself boarded Niagara on her left side, being the uh, larboard side. Is it fair to say that Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott, Niagara's commander, was left a bit stunned by Commodore Oliver Perry being on board his vessel? Well, I will, I will say that if I was Lieutenant Elliott, I probably would be a little bit stunned knowing that uh, the commander of this, um, of the um, mission on the American side is now all of a sudden aboard my vessel, but without consent. But then again, this is not a time for questioning. Well, for Lieutenant Elliot, there's a lot of uh, questions he's left to ponder with. Well, considering earlier the flagship Lawrence endured a wrath of firings upon the enemy, leaving scores of crewmen dead, to being badly wounded on top of not knowing whether or not Perry himself survived the ordeal. So yes, if you are Lieutenant Elliot, you know, it's not like, you know, you're sitting back and just saying, well, my, my vessel's um, not being harmed, so I don't have to worry about what's going on. I'm going to assume that despite all the intense firing at USS Lawrence or at, um, or at the uh, flagship Lawrence, that uh, Perry's going to be okay when it's all said and done with. Well, don't assume anything. The fact that Perry's alive probably did surprise um, Elliot, knowing just how much of a beating um, Lawrence herself took. But this is important um, to note here that by 2.40 p.m. on September 10th of 1813, the American fleet lineup has changed. And that would be um, 
that would not come as a surprise considering what has happened to USS Lawrence. So here's the new realignment. Scorpion and Ariel are at the left of the new uh, brig flagship Niagara. But immediately facing these two schooners, that is for Scorpion and Ariel, from the British side was Chippewa. So um, schooners, um, Scorpion and Ariel are now squared off against Chippewa. The Niagara is directly facing HMS Detroit with Queen Charlotte to her immediate right, where she squared off with USS Caledonia and Summers. Porcupine, Tigress, and Trip faced off against HMS General Hunter, and HMS Lady Prevost and Little Belt are standing behind Queen Charlotte and General Hunter. Quite a unique uh, configuration, to say the least. But on the other hand, maybe it's good not to have everybody lined up in one straight line. Because it, it's awkward enough that Charlotte and Detroit have sustained damage. Maybe not as severe as um, Lawrence, but they both of those British vessels have taken a beating. But the fact that they have lost officers is an even bigger story. Various reports of exchange was known to have taken place between Perry and Elliot. Perry uh, did not charge Elliot with neglect of duty, but at the same time, Perry himself was not fully aware of the severity behind Elliot's subpar performance given the current situation going on between Lawrence and Detroit. You know, think about it, folks. We don't have uh, walkie-talkies, so we don't really have a way of, you know, our means of communication is a little bit limited here. We don't you know, no necessarily like, okay, you know, so-and-so wasn't, you know, performing up to par. Um, so maybe that person needs to be reprimanded or some kind of punishment needs to be doled out. You know, we don't have time to be tattling, but at the same time, I'm sure that there is a lot going on in Perry's mind wondering, okay, did Lieutenant Elliot do enough on his end before I arrived? That, that's a million-dollar question there. So, regardless of the debate, though, Perry himself knew Niagara was in a perfect position to break enemy line. Perry instructed Elliot to bring up the gunboats, trailing from behind as he insisted they be firing at the primary vessels of Detroit and Charlotte. So basically now, folks, Perry is going to be the one taking the uh, command of Niagara. In other words, Perry has figured out, you know, some plans or better logistical planning that he knows has to, that he's already come up with, or I should say devised, but he knows that, that if he tells someone else, there may not be enough time to really carry this thing out. Time is of the essence here, folks. And it's probably fair to say that even the Americans are on more borrowed time than the British are. Prior to uh, Perry's arrival onto Niagara, the vessel saw two of her men wounded, but um, no major damage is sustained. The distance between Niagara and Lawrence is relatively close, given it only took Perry a few minutes to reach Niagara. So while all this is happening, folks, there is celebration that has already broken out 
on HMS Detroit and Charlotte as all of the crewmen are convinced they've won. They've all gotten this assumption that, well, we have really uh, put a dent, not just a 101 dent in USS Lawrence, but we've put it dents that go beyond the sky ceiling in USS Lawrence to where these other vessels may just decide to throw in the towel. Maybe they've come to the realization that without their flagship vessel, signature flagship vessel, that there's simply no reason to um, carry on the fight. Well, let's find out a little bit more here, folks. Was British Lieutenant Commander Robert Barclay able to, dis to dispatch a boarding boat party out to where USS Lawrence was stationed as a means for accepting surrender? Believe it or not, folks, uh, the answer is no. How so? Well, shortly afterwards, out of nowhere, Lieutenant Barclay endured enemy firing from Niagara via grape shot. And, of course, early on, folks, we did learn that Lieutenant Barclay did suffer a splinter wound. Well, Niagara launching a grape shot ultimately led to uh, shattering Barclay's right shoulder, and ultimately he went down below to the surgeon. So it's bad enough that he endured a splinter wound um, in his thigh, but now he has uh, endured another, um, another uh, probably I would say this wound is far more graver, or I should say severe than the other, but his right shoulder has now been shattered. George Inglis, Bark Barclay's second lieutenant, is now the new head commander of the entire British fleet, not only just for HMS Detroit, but for the whole entire command of the British fleet. I can't imagine now being in this man's shoes and, and uh, feeling the burden of what lies ahead. Lieutenant Elliot went aboard schooner Summers by lowering her sails and four gunboats side by side went about blasting away at the ends of Detroit and Charlotte, yielding strong results for the Americans. Perry raised the battle flag with the motto, Don't Give Up the Ship, to Niagara's topmast, along with setting course towards the center of the British line. Second Lieutenant Inglis was faced with a situation where majority of all of all larboard guns on the left sides weren't serviceable. I can't imagine being Lieutenant Inglis. You're the whole you're you're now the commander that everyone's looking up to within the British fleet, but the majority of all um, guns on the left sides of your ships are are, are simply just not serviceable anymore. The only solution now would be to wear the ship by by changing or moving from one course to another by putting the helm up and going, in this case, 180 degrees from the wind. 
this is a good idea, but there's only there's another problem. The Royal Navy is now lacking veterans with long experience. And to make matters worse on top of it, Detroit and Charlotte soon ultimately became entangled together due to Charlotte ramming into Detroit's rigging. Both British flagships are now at the mercy of incessant gunfire as Perry sailed Niagara to Britain's center line. Three British ships to the right and the other three to the left, Commodore Perry unraveled both of Niagara's double-shotted broadsides. The guns fired at Detroit from the right with Prevost and Little Belt. From the left, uh, that is, uh, Prevost and Little Belt from the left, the gun captains are chanting the following in quotations, folks. Sponge, load, fire. Sponge, load, fire. Sponge meaning to remove um, debris from inside the cannon so that when you get ready to um, load the next go-around, you won't have anything that would be hitting you from behind and perhaps taking out a crewmate or an entire uh, crew. So, yes, cleaning the debris reloading so that you can go again and fire and we're not just talking once folks it's multiple repetitions multiple repetitions that are designed to uh, let the enemy know that this wrath is beyond 101 wrath that they might that they may not fully recover from in the midst of of frantic enemy firing how were the british most notably on board Detroit and Charlotte coping with their problems. They were using whatever was available, most notably axes and breaking apart discombobulated spars and rigging, which had resulted in connecting both vessels together. So, you know, now for the British, time is a um, time is all the more of a, of a uh, pre precious commodity, except you don't know where the next firings are coming from, given they are coming at such a rampant speed on the American side, and here you are trying to break apart um, discombobulated spars and rigging that have resulted in connecting both vessels together. I mean, it might as well be described as hell. Is this really the way... Did Was this... Um, how do I say it? If you're on the British side... You have to ask yourself, was this the original game plan? Were we supposed to be spared in a situation like this? It's bad enough if one of the other six ships may have gotten this, but how in the world could it be that the two flagship vessels are struggling for survival? Well, despite the dire circumstances, the British did inflict a fair share of casualties upon American forces, most notably those aboard Niagara. Although Detroit and Queen Charlotte did manage to break to eventually break apart from the entanglement, it was already too late. Considering the overall state of conditions on board both British flagship vessels, and I think it probably would be fair to say that by the time both of these ships had um, had broken free from entanglement. The means of any means of them being able to fire back at uh, Niagara or any of the other um, American um, vessels in the fleet 
the chances of Queen Charlotte and Detroit being able to uh, successfully fire are are slim, or, or very very slim, because um, their um, their guns on their larboard side are simply no longer functioning. So now, if you're HMS Detroit, what is your only other option? It's an option that you would never think would have had to have been used, but yet it's now going to come down to it whether whether you like it or not. HMS Detroit signaled her state of surrender by firing a gun off her disengaged side. A white flag, a.k.a. a truce flag, rose from Queen Charlotte's deck followed by General Hunter and Lady Prevost raising their flags. Chippewa and Little Belt raised their sails by setting course for the Detroit River. And eventually they were um, met up. Believe it or not, folks, sometime after 3 o'clock on September 10, 1813, 210 years ago, folks, now in American possession, a rare circumstance in British history that had seldomly ever happened, but it did happen in September on September 10th of 1813. The British Royal Navy lost an entire fleet. The entire fleet surrendered. Six vessels, folks. Six vessels surrendered. Six. Um, that, to me, would have represented a very, very dark day in um, the British Royal Navy's history. I'm sure there have probably been some other episodes in Britain's uh, history where her Royal Navy did not perform up to par, but very, very seldomly did an entire fleet surrender. And when an entire fleet surrendered, I can only imagine how many red flags will be popping up, or in this case, yes, would, would be popping up, and I can't imagine how many uh, questions will be asked. You have to wonder, will there be more than one inquiry in London as to what, you know, as to why this happened, and, you know, so there's, there, there will eventually probably be um, an endless array of questions to, that will have to be addressed 3,000 miles across the ocean. Who was the first uh, U.S. officer to board HMS Detroit? It wasn't Oliver Perry, folks. It was Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott, who would be the first American commander to visit, or I should say, to meet one-on-one -on -one with uh, Robert Barclay. Lieutenant Elliott was originally presented with Barclay's sword as a means of accepting surrender, but instead, uh, Barclay preferred that Oliver Perry receive the high recipient distinction, since he was the lead um, savior in uh, rescuing the mission. In my opinion, he was. The Battle of Lake Erie, folks, lasted three hours. Three hours, folks. And the Americans prevailed. For a while there, it didn't seem like maybe we were going to. But yet we did. And thank heavens we had a leader who still r recognized that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. 
Yes, the flagship vessel was um, was badly injured. But I think it's fair to say that Oliver Perry, though, in the end, did not give up the ship. He still didn't give up on um, Lawrence because he found um, enough determination and courage, especially inspired from um, from the late um, from the late Captain uh, James Lawrence, whom commanded USS Chesapeake, whom lost his life in June of 1813, just three months before this battle. Uh, some somewhere off the uh, port of Boston, when um, when uh, James Lawrence's uh, forces engaged um, a British uh, frigate, and sadly the frigate um, prevailed. But it is fair to say that um, it wasn't so much giving up the ship, but it was also a means of preserving uh, the legacy of uh, Captain Lo- uh, Captain Lawrence, who not only lost his life, but what Captain Lawrence would have wanted. Don't give up the ship without a fight. If your ship goes down, you go down with it. You don't go you you go down knowing that you didn't um, leave anything on the table. You go down knowing that you didn't lose without excuses. Although you don't want to lose, you don't want to repeat the same mistakes that others made before you. As I mentioned earlier, like William Brigadier General William Hull, Lieutenant Porter Hanks, and um. James Winchester, all of whom performed um, acts of cowardice when there still were opportunities to resist and hold out. So, um, yes, in the end, uh, Oliver Perry did receive uh, Lieutenant um, Robert Barclay's sword. He wrote a letter to General William Henry Harrison, and it was, it was in the uh, following uh, quotation. Dear General, we have met the enemy, and they are ours. Two ships, two brigs, one schooner, and one sloop. Yours with great respect and esteem, Oliver Hazard Perry. A signal victory. A signal victory, folks, had been uh, secured at last. Ohio, all of Lake Erie. All of Lake Erie, folks, will now be um, in America's hands because of this victory, a.k.a. the Battle of Lake Erie. The British will now lose all of Lake Erie. They will still retain, in the end, um, Lakes Huron, Superior, and Michigan, but they will never be able, but they will never get Lake Erie back. As a result of this victory, folks, the Indiana Territory is still uh, spared from any further uh, British invasion. After all, we were successful in November of 1811 in defeating Tecumseh at uh, Prophetstown as well as at uh, Tippecanoe. But the Indiana Territory will be uh, spared from any further would-be invasions. The Michigan Territory, folks, uh, those people, those Americans living in the Michigan Territory will no longer have to worry about being subjects to his majesty, the crown. They will no longer have to worry about being subjects to uh, British officers um, whom, uh, like Colonel Henry Proctor, as well as Sir Isaac Brock. They will now be liberated and be able to uh, live uh, freely and not have to worry about taking up an oath of allegiance to the crown. 
while all of this is great from a water standpoint in terms of a body of water, from a territory standpoint with Michigan and Indiana territory, as well as from an actual state uh, standpoint being with the state of Ohio, now being uh, completely liberated, given that we prevailed twice uh, with uh, with repelling two uh, British attacks or assaults at Fort Meigs and then defeating the British at Fort Stevenson, uh, just uh, east of uh, Fort Meigs. This also is a large morale boost. As 1813 is soon nearing an end, we don't know what 1814 will bring, but what we do know is that America has a lot, has a lot uh, more to feel good about than it did a year earlier, or even at the start of 1813. So yes, this truly is a signal victory, meaning that America, that America's, um, that a light, that there still is a light at the end of the tunnel, and for America, she still has the means to go forward. She still has the means to. Um, take on the mightiest empire in the world, even if it means uh, winning economic independence, whereas 30-some years earlier it was uh, political independence. Well, when I'm on the air again uh, next time, folks, uh, we've covered um, everything there is to cover about in this uh, episode, but when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk about, uh, in a two-part series, we're going to talk about what is called uh, denouement. And when I'm on the air again next, I will uh, make sure to elaborate what, in fact, uh, denouement itself means. Well, thank you for your time, as always, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe, and thank you for being such ardent listeners. Take care.